Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by Dr. Yiska Zimran, lecturer in the Zalman Shamir Bible Department at Bar Ilan University, and is entitled The Dynamic Relationship Between God and Man in the Book of Hosea, a Synchronic Reading. Individual prophetic units in the Bible in general, and in the Book of Hosea in particular, portray the prophet's concrete approach towards the events of his time. A reading of individual units might indicate the, con the context of their authorship or redaction, the events that elicited the prophecy, and even specific reactions to these events reflected in calamity, rebuke, or consolation. A reading of individual units requires a clear delineation of the unit's boundaries based on acceptable and probable parameters. Additionally, an analysis is needed of the unit's arrangement, time of authorship, and stages of formation, especially when based on diachronic approaches. The purpose of independent reading is to trace the unit's original intent, the social historical background, and the cultural and ideological world it reflects. Through this method, the modern reader can be brought closer to the past. However, this paper demonstrates a dynamic synchronic reading in Hosea, which reveals ongoing links and processes between the units in the book. The paper is based on a synchronic approach to the canonic text of Hosea and reads the text dynamically. In other words, it focuses on the relationship between the individual units and the manner in which the lexical recurrences challenge the original boundaries and enable a creation of significant processes in the framework of the book's totality. The outcome of this reading might shed light on the prophetic work as a complete product with dynamic internal significance which supersedes the original meaning of each individual unit. This type of reading involves the reader in the interpretive process since it is the reader who creates new meaning in the text. Therefore, this method enables modern readers to bring the text closer to their frame of reference. The book of Hosea is characterized by an inordinate volume of lexical recurrences and related wordplay, and is therefore an appropriate text for the application of this reading method. The book's characteristics invite the reader to listen, interpret, and reformulate the content of the prophecies. Since the lexical recurrences create another layer of meaning in the unit, they should be perceived as an immanent component of the book's content and not merely as a literary characteristic. As an example of the application of this reading method, I have selected a group of five units from the Mesoratic text of the book. Each independent unit contains unique and close 
content. 7, 1 to 12 is a rebuke for creating alliances with foreign nations. 9, 1 to 6 relates to idolatry and is the, the, the Hebrew will get when I'm not concentrated. And it's dedicated mostly to the description of future calamity in light of the present situation. 11, 1 to 7 returns to idolatry and emphasizes the contrast between this phenomena and God's expectation of their relationship with the nation. 11, 10 to 11 is a prophecy of consolation that describes returning the nation of Israel to its land due to the loving relationship between God and his people. And 12, 1 to 2 is a rebuke for creating political alliances while emphasizing their futility and presenting them as a contrast to the relationship with God. So why these five units? The units I have selected are characterized by featuring the correlative pair Assyria-Egypt, which should be defined as AMOT. Each of the units presents the relationship with Assyria and Egypt as an alternative to the relationship with God. Therefore, the motif represents represent the distance from God. Despite the general prevalent mention of Assyria and Egypt in the Bible due to the centrality of the two kingdoms, the appearance as a correlative pair is unique to the book of Hosea, and particularly to the five units discussed, discussed in this paper. The broader lexical links demonstrated in this table strengthens the connection between the units and reinforces their suitability to demonstrate this reading method. Limiting the dynamic synchronic reading to a group of texts with similar characteristics defines the foundation for a joint reading of the text and sets clear, sets clear parameters for such a reading. However, Limiting the scope to this group of texts does not negate the possibility of defining additional groups in the book and examining the meaning created by their dynamic synchronic reading. So what then is the interpretive and ideological contribution of the links created between these five units? Scholars who emphasize the unique literary qualities of Hosea related to the book's lexical recurrences in a variety of ways. For example, Bas utilized the recurrences to distinguish between original and later components in the prophecies. Morris emphasized not only the repetition, but also distinctions in the use of each recurring phrase while utilizing various meanings of idioms and roots. He views these as testimony to the prophet's poetic capabilities. Uffenheimer demonstrate the difference between recurring phrases as an expression of the book's ideology. He also illustrates how the prophet sometimes uses repetition to present a correspondence within units, which represents a dialogue between God and the nation. I would like to go one step further and demonstrate how the lexical recurrences are the foundation for a dialogue between the units. In this paper, the term dialogue describe the revival of existing lexical similarities between the texts and instilling them with meaning that emerge from the relationship between the texts. Interpretation, qualification, reinforcement, or judgment of the recurrences against one another. The dialogue need not correlate with the primary meaning of the units, and it is not explicitly present, but rather founded 
in the formulations and developed by the reader who notes the literary similarities between the units. As an example of this reading method, I will demonstrate the significance of the roots shuv, shin vav vet, and halach, hey lamed chaf, which appear in four out of the, of the five units. I will then demonstrate the relationship between phrases that appears in some, but not all of the units, by the root achal, alef chaf lamed. Finally, I will, I will address the dialogue between the pairs in full units, 7, 8 to 12, and 11, 8 to 11. I will explain the meaning instilled in each phrase and root in the context of the specific verse, and the dialogue created through various occurrences. The occurrences might catch the reader's eyes and stimulate the dialogical process presented below, perhaps due to their uniqueness, such as the irregular recurrence of the dove, yona, or shod. In other instances, the recurrence of central and familiar phrases demands analysis to uncover meaning, as in the case of the root shuv, shin vav bet, and I will start with this root verse. In 7.10, the root shuv represents the persistence in Israel's betrayal of God. They do not shavu, return to the Lord their God, or seek him for all this. In 9.3 presents God's response to Israel's betrayal through a wordplay between the root shur and the root yashav. I will, okay, I will hoshavtim, place them in their houses. Although the return anticipated, no. Sorry. From the beginning, just a minute, just a page. It was weird. Okay, again. Um, 9.3 presents God's response to Israel's betrayal through a wordplay between the root shul and the root yashal. They shall not yeshvu, dwell in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall shall return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they shall eat unclean food. God rejects and distances Israel and the two roots are instilled with physical symbolism. The occurrence in 11.5 can be perceived as a response to the strong rejection expressed in 9.3. He will not yeshuv, return to the land of Egypt, rather it is Assyria who is his king because they refused lashuv, to repent. In this verse, the root shuv has a physical meaning of avoiding returning to Egypt, as well as spiritual return, or more accurately, avoiding return to God's ways. The latter denotation of the root shuv might retrospectively affect the interpretation of the root in 9.3. Perhaps Ephraim shall shove return to Egypt is not only a physical description, but also an expression of Israel's trust in and reliance on other nations. Thus, the physical dwelling in Egypt it instilled with symbolic significance of distance from God. 11.7 creates an opening for a renewal of the relationship between Israel and God. My people are dependent on my meshuvati, turning back. God recognizes the nation's dependence and emphasizes the possibility of a mutual return. Contrary to 7.8 and 11.5, which express the anticipation that the nation will return to God, 
This verse indicates the possibility that God will be the one to initiate the return regardless of the nation's behavior. This return is given practical expression in 11.9, when an additional occurrence of the root expresses God's desire to sweeten the verdict and decision to avoid punishment, punishing Israel. I will not execute my burning anger. I will law ashuv, not again destroy a fine. The practical return is presented in verse 11 through the play with the root yashar. Here it is. I will hoshavtim, place them in their houses. Although the return anticipated in, of Israel in, in 710 was not realized, 1111 describes a return to the primal state, which is the converse of the state described in the context of retribution in 93. If the exile from the land expresses distance from God, dwelling in the land expresses the renewed relationship between God and his people. The root halach, hey lamed chaf, in 7.11, expresses Israel's relationship with Assyria and Egypt. They call upon Egypt, they halachu, go to Assyria. Going in this verse expresses an act of trust. The recurrence of the root in verse 12 instills the relationship with, with these nations a sense of betrayal of God and indicates his complete control over his nation in every time and place. As they yelechu, go, I will cast my net over them. In 9.6, the root expresses the punishment God will inflict on his nation and the geographical and emotional distance that will result. For behold, when they have halchu, gone from the devastated land, Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them. In this verse, going does not symbolize trust, but is rather portrayed as walking with a crouched pasture, which indicates the nation's severe state. The nature of halach here instilled a secondary meaning to previous uses of the root verb while they are perceived by the nation as a wise step that will reinforce the nation's position, in retrospect, this appears to be a turning point that worsens its situation in the future. Additionally, the root halach has a negative connotation in 11.2, where Israel is portrayed as betraying God and placing its faith in others instead. As I called them, they halchu went from me. In this instance, the betrayal is expressed in idolatry. The final appearance of the root is surprising since it fails to mention disconnect and distance between God and the nation and instead emphasizes the connection between them. They shall yelchu, go, after the Lord who rouse like a lion. The process that began with going, that distanced the nation from God, ends with a journey that expresses the renewed connection due to God's initiative. In 7.9, the root achal, alef, chaf, lamed, describes the control of other nations over Israel and the loss of independent power as a result. Foreigners achlu, devour his strength, but he doesn't know it. As a result of their actions, and as a description of the resulting punishment, 934, utilize the root once again. 
Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and in Assyria they yochlu, shall eat unclean food, and I skip here. Such sacrifices shall be like mourner's bread, all ochlav, who eat of it, shall be defiled. The fact that they do not bring their offerings to God's dwelling, eat in a foreign land, and are affected by their actions, attest to the physical and emotional dismissal of the nation. The use of the root achal as an expression of, a di of distance between God and the nation and the cultural and religious gap between Israel and the nations retrospectively alters the meaning of the previous occurrence of the root. If achal in 7.9 was understood as a description of a political or military blow of Israel's strength, now an additional meaning was instilled, a harm to the nation's religious status. In 11.6, the root is an expression of the calamity that will befall the cities of Israel. This calamity is added to the previous described exile, enhancing the punishment. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and achla devours because of their consuls. In Hebrew, it's a bit more complicated. However, another usage precedes the use of this root, which is reminiscent of the initial relationship between God and the nation. With human cords I drew them, with bonds of love. I, I was to them like those who lift a baby to their cheeks. I bent down that I might ochil, feed him. This occurrence emphasizes the contrast between the identity of the provider and the quality of the food compared to previous occurrences of the roots. This contrast enhances the positive meaning of the verse. Mentioning the initial relationship in 11.4 demonstrates the distance between the initial and the present relationships. On the other hand, it emphasizes the close relationship even in this difficult time and creates hope that the relationship may be renewed in the future. The dialogue between recurring phrases in 7.8-12 and 11.8-11 correlates with the nature of the dialogue demonstrated above and advances the discussion towards the formulation of the overall conclusion regarding dialogue between the units. In the unit in chapter 7 describes the relationship Israel forged with Assyria and Egypt. This relationship is characterized in the unit both for its inefficacy and for the fact that it negates a relationship with God and its and is perceived as betrayal. Ephraim is described as a cake not turned, criticized for the lack of ability to withstand the challenges ahead. The description like Yonah, a dove, gullible and without sense, lev. They call upon Egypt, they halachu, go to Assyria, is an expression of lack of judgment behind their political choices. Despite God's call to return, they cho the choice is they do not shavu, return to the Lord their God. Contrarily, the recurring phrases in the unit in chapter 11 express a reversal in the relationship between God and his people. Moreover, the majority of fruits describing the nation in the first unit are used to describe God in the second. The description, Libi, my heart, Nehepach recoils with me, within me, in verse 8, presents God's change of heart and his grief for the nation he had decided to punish. 
In verse 9, the desire to avoid destroying the nation despite their sins is expressed by the root shuv. I will not execute my burning anger. Lo ashuv, I will not again destroy Ephraim. Parallel to Israel pursuing the nations, halach, which express their disconnect between Israel and God, verse 10 describes the nation's pursuit of God. They yelchu, shall go after the Lord, who rouse like a lion. This chase is a derivative of God's will to return the nation to the land and to him. They will be roused like a bird from Egypt, like Yonah, a dove from the land of Assyria. The same garbled dove that represented Israel's lack of stability and betrayal of God in the first unit follows God back to the land as an expression of their renewed relationship. Based on these examples, I would like to suggest some possible implications of the dialogue between the texts. All five units include lexical recurrences, as we saw. However, instead of signifying similarity, the linguistic recurrences express a development in God's relationship with Israel through various stages. These stages are connected through the repetition, which unrivals the unit's boundaries and prevents a view of all of the various stages as independent content. Thus, the complete calamity described in 9, 1 to 6, for example, is not just an independent principle, but also part of the process that ends with the return to God. Going to Egypt, halchu, in 9, 6, ends when the nation follow God back to the land, Yelchu, 11.10. Returning from exile in 11.8-11, for example, is not an independent message, but rather a derivative of sin and subsequent calamity, and the return to the relationship is described at the start of the process. Returning to dwell in Israel, Hoshavtim, 11.11, leans on the return to Egypt, Shav, 9.3, and the refusal to return to God, Velo Shavu, in 7.10. In correlation, a dialogical reading of the lexical recurrences, recurrences prevents the view of one stage as the be-all and end-all. The repetition prevents the possibility of viewing either the calamity or the redemption as a representative of the entire relationship and enforces a view of the totality of details as, as an expression of the relationship between God and his nation. This interactive process between between the units through recurrences, therefore enables one to view the legal and emotional foundation of the process as well as its potential. It provides context and meaning to various points in the historical sequence. Creating such a process enables a view of the shared foundation of various actions by God and the nation, and binding them into a, into a relationship in which God and the nation are intertwined. The broader prism of the relationship created by this reading enables us to place the individual or national relationship with God in a broader context, which can be relatable in any era. The above-mentioned process and its various components define principles related to the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. For example, according to the dialogue, the nation is presented as sinning and not returning to God at any stage. God is portrayed as the one who punishes with an emphasis on the fact that the punishment is just. However, 
God does not anticipate the nation's return and instead initiates returning them based on the earlier, earlier relationship. The root shuv, as I discussed it earlier, is a fine application of this principle. While the root could have been used to describe the nation's return to God, this is avoided. Nonetheless, the punishment is cut short and the nation is returned to its land. These dialogues also demonstrate the essential relationship between God and the nation, a relationship that is, in fact, the reason for the renewal of the relationship despite the nation's stagnancy and is the source of a great disappointment for the sinning nation and the definition of its sins as betrayal. A good example can be found in the recurring root achal, aleph raflamet, which is used to describe the sin in 7.9, the punishment, 9.3-4 and 11.6, and the essential relationship between God and the nation in 11.4. As briefly mentioned in the analysis of the units, the lexical recurrences and the relationship between the units also create a connection between seemingly unrelated phenomena, such as idolatry, and turning to foreign nations for assistance, which, for which Assyria and Egypt are the clearest and most relevant example from the prophet's era. Linking the phenomena creates a unified principle, namely that betrayal of God, which is the root of all sin in the book of Hosea. For example, 7.11 utilizes the root halach, as an expression of the reliance on foreign nations in 11.2, no, yes, in seven, again, again. For example, 7.11 utilizes the root halach as an expression of the reliance on foreign, God, foreign nations, and 11.2 utilizes the same root to describe the reliance on foreign gods. The relationship between the two also serves to emphasize the justice of the divine punishment through the use of a single root to describe sin and punishment. Interestingly, while a dynamic synchronic reading yields an interpretation of phrases that differ from the original meaning, some of the ideological insights that emerge from this reading actually correlate with ideological insights that characterize the book of Hosea as a whole. The ideological correlation reinforces the modern interpretation of the text, even if such a correlation is not required. This paper and the reading method described herein also contributes to defining an essential relationship between the reader and the text. The complex relationship between God and the nation formulated above was not presented on the surface of the text, but is rather a derivative of the dialogue between the units. A person who reads the units in their entirety, uncovers the links, places each phrase in its rightful place in the sequence of text, and defines the ideological perceptions that emerge from the links between the texts. These ideological insights are embedded in the units and in the links that bind them. However, the extraction of the meaning is only enabled by the reader's participation in the process. The fact that this is a sealed text emphasizes its characterization as a text that is embedded in the past. As I stated earlier, the independent reading of the units preserve this status. For this very reason, the way to revive the text and instill it with new meaning is to read the units side by side and examine their effect on one another. In other words, 
creating dynamic dialogues between the units and reading them in this light enables modern readers to become involved in the ancient text and to some extent turn them into part of the rewriting of the text without damaging the fabric of the original text. In fact, this paper demonstrates the dynamic movement of the units both in horizontal axis within the book and the vertical axis that develops in time. Horizontally, this study demonstrated the relationship between the units and the manner in which a dialogue between them breaks the boundaries of the units and links them while defining a dynamic process. This horizontal dynamic also extracts the units from the historical context in which they were written. The extraction is performed by the modern reader, who is also connected to the text through the process, instilling the units with new meaning. But what justifies the modern dynamic reading of this sealed text? What is the foundation of the renewed reading of canonic prophetic texts in a manner that does not correlate with the original meaning of the individual units? Apparently, the reading method described in this paper correlates with the nature of the biblical prophecy. Firstly, the purpose of classical prophecy was to reflect reality in a moral perspective and rouse the nation to another perspective on its reality. The prophet sought to involve the nation and open their hearts to his messages. However, this paper expands the basic principles of prophetic literature and enables the reader not only to become involved in one limited prophetic unit, but rather to connect the units based on clear lexical criteria in order to extract new meaning that deviates from the original intent of the units. This type of intervention by the reader characterizes the stage of written prophecy. The reader who becomes involved in the units and creates new meaning in effect continues the prophet's work, which does not end with sounding the prophecy, but rather continues on another path from the moment they were written. A discussion of the relationship between the units does not emerge only from the limitations of the modern reader who approach the steel text in which the units can no longer be expanded, but also from its advantages. As David Carr asserted, asserted, the reading of a biblical text as a whole was not possible for the ancient audience, and thus was irrelevant. It is specifically the modern reader with his ability to view the text in its entirety, who can read, analyze, and apply these reading methods. According to Clement, the canonic text has another effect on the type of, on the, of, uh, on the type of modern reading suggested, ab suggested above. The very creation of a canon reflects the ability and need to read the text in their entirety while maintaining an interpretive link between them that affects the interpretation of the text through their unification. While these interpretations do not reflect the original meaning of the unit, it is legitimate one assembled in a, the canonical text. Secondly, the freedom that enables a renewed interpretation is not entirely novel. This phenomenon exists even in the prophetic works themselves and is expressed in the reduction of the text, its canonization, and the additions embedded throughout the centuries. The same can be said of the relationship between the New and the Old Testament. 
These phenomena reflect a prophetic principle according to which the prophet's words are perceived as a representation of God's words, but since they are directed to man, he can use them as he pleases. The interpretive freedom in the prophetic text is a methodological reflection of its content and premise. The future transmitted in classical prophecies is not a description of future deterministic realities and cannot be realized by God alone according to his will. The prophecies are given to the people and are susceptible, susceptible to human intervention which affect the realization of their content. Just as the content of the prophecies is not sealed, so too their formulation and meaning. The interpretive freedom creates hope and persistent change instead of portraying prophetic words as determining a clear future which is the application of a divine edict which restricts man's freedom. <laughs>